Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. The show is presented to you by Gasowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our website at gasowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Today, Adam Gasowitz, myself, and Robert Port are going to have a roundtable discussion about lessons from the trenches, how to avoid family disputes over money, estates, and businesses. Adam, let's start off with you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the differences for Gasowitz Frankel and how we face a lot of family disputes? <laughs> well, m- mostly what we do is, is resolve disputes as opposed to um, planning. I mean, we, the firm started out 30 years ago as, as a planning, estate and business planning firm. And for the last 25, 26 years of that, we have focused uh, almost exclusively on um, all aspects of fiduciary litigation, representing individuals, executors, trustees, investors, shareholders. It was sort of the range of people that get into disputes involving estates and trusts and business planning. And that is uh, what we focused on. We try our best to avoid disputes and help families recognize potential problems before they arise. And when that can't be done in advance, we try our best to, uh, to, to resolve them before they become a, a big mess. So here, so here at Wealth Matters, we try to talk about issues that people can think about and hopefully plan well for the future. And we always tell the joke at the end of the show, and if it doesn't work out, that's when Gaslitch Frankel gets involved. So today, we thought we'd talk about some of the things we have seen that maybe if people had thought about them or were able to focus on them, that maybe the, the, the disputes could have been avoided. So it's kind of war stories from the trenches with a little bit of a kicker, and here's how maybe we could have solved it. So let's kind of open up in one of the areas that we're seeing a huge expansion of, of, of disputes, which is family businesses. Um, Robert, why don't we start with you? Tell, tell us uh, kind of what you think from some of our recent cases, one of the biggest areas of problems we're having with uh, business, businesses and family-owned businesses. Well, I, th- I think one of the problems relates to the fact that it's a family-owned business, and as a result, f- not um, in- inappropriately, many families think they can form a business and do things with just the minimum of corporate type of documentation. So many times what we see are disputes where there is no operating agreement or the operating agreement was done 30 years ago when dad or granddad started the business. There's no shareholders agreement. There's no buy-sell agreement. So there are none of these roadmaps that we as lawyers would look to that might give us a plan for addressing the dispute. And as a result, we're left with what the law might provide statutorily or what the case law might provide. And again, that is often not exactly the way people think the disputes ought to uh, be addressed. Well, it it often comes up rather naturally because one person forms the business, dad or grandfather. And so decision-making was easy. It was one person making the decision. And even, even as some ownership interests start transitioning down to the next generations, those are usually small bits of, of ownership interest. And usually while the patriarch is still alive or the matriarch, um, decisions are still being made by that person regardless of ownership structure. As long as dad's there, dad's getting what dad wants. It's when you lose that generation and the ownership interests are, are, are spread out among a number of hands that the 
issue of having impasse resolution, about having guidelines and structure really comes to play. And so I think we're talking really about the lessons that we're learning. One is that as the, the business grows and as the patriarch or matriarch ages, let's start thinking about these issues again. And one of the things we all know is you're the fairest and most generous when there's not a problem. So start thinking as everyone ages, what would you want to do? Now not focusing on the structure, the taxes, and all of that, but now focusing on what's going to happen when I'm gone or what's going to happen when there's an issue. Yeah, the, pro the problem is that fairness often translates into I want my kids to share in the business equally. Or I want, you know, I, my, my main asset is the business. So I'm going to give it a third to each of my children. And how do you do that when one of the kids who may, when I say kid, this may be a 50 or 60-year-old adult who already has children of their own, is involved in the business, and another kid lives in Alaska and is fishing, and, the, and another kid is not involved in the business. How do you give a business when the, the interests of the various parties is different? But you're right, it's, it's, it's often a large asset. Well, this is where a lot of the planning comes in, and this is where good estate and financial planners are, are, are invaluable. It is hard to structure uh, a transition of business when the business is the main asset. And so you sometimes have to be creative. I mean, we, you know, what we see after the fact is, is stock is spread out all over the place because it was, it was divvied up for tax purposes. <coughs> but if what you're trying to do is make sure the business ends up uh, controlled by one person, but, but the value is shared by others, if there aren't other assets, you've got to be creative in how you either um, structure the, the distributions out of the business or the management structure within the business. And this is where you know business planners and estate planners uh, should take uh, a, a less passive role in deciding how the business ought to be, be done. So, so Robert, let's, let me ask this question to you. That what, what I hear Adam saying is if you can monetize or figure out a way to equalize things between the insiders and the outsiders, that might be, go a long way to, to, to avoiding disputes. Tell, tell the listeners uh, some of the areas where there's been either good monetization or bad monetization. What could the families do? Well, I'm, uh, as you were talking about this topic, I thought of a matter we had a number of years ago with a business that was left equally to uh, two children. And one of them did a lot of work in the business, increased it, grew it. The other one, you know, supposedly didn't do that much, and it created a lot of resentment. And there was no clearly defined way identified ahead of time with some of the corporate documents Adam just mentioned as to how to uh, breach that impasse, perhaps buy one out. So that, that was a very clear example to me of the importance of doing this ahead of time because what happened was that the business was put at risk because of the fight. Uh, there was a claim that the 250% owners couldn't get along, so let's dissolve the business, which would essentially result in having it sold at a fire sale, and nobody wanted that. No one wanted to destroy Dad's business. <laughs> but they got into a, a huge uh, piece of litigation over that because there was no roadmap ahead of time, taking into account the fact that maybe one sibling has more business acumen than the other. The other one, as you said, might live in another state. Uh, the other one may do nominal work or not really have any business sense. Yeah, the problem is you've got to deal with the, um, you know, the family issues, the emotional issues that go along with what ownership represents. You know, Dad really wants his assets to be split 50-50, but one child is clearly better able to run the business and maybe has been running the business. You know, you, it's not enough just to say that child should run the business. We'll set up the structure that way. You've got to 
have enough communication between the two to explain that th this is how we're going to do it. This is why we're doing it this way. If you have concerns, family members, let's discuss those now and let's see if we can address those concerns in a different way. But, but the business has to have some sort of management structure to avoid the potential fights that businesses like this get right. into. Right, and that, that's where good business planning ahead of time comes into place. Yeah, but, the but, but the but discussions that Adam just had should be uh, done on the, uh, on the initiation of discussing how the business but, is going to be but, transferred. But fully a, th a third of the cases we deal with, and we've dealt with thousands of estate and trust disputes over the years, fully a third of them deal with the transition of businesses to the next generation that weren't done properly. Or transition so, of wealth. Transition of wealth. But a lot of times there are businesses involved. And, and it, is, it is great to, to say we, you should talk to your business planner or financial planner to structure this better. But the reality is it doesn't always happen because you, know, you can be a great business planner, a great tax attorney, but you, you're not always aware in those roles of the kinds of problems that, that can flow from this structure or that. You're, you're usually very aware of how to, how to transition it in the best tax way possible. And so sometimes it takes a, a team of people, one of whom maybe is an estate litigator, um, who can uh, stress test a, a, a plan of division so that you can think about these kinds of issues and not just the tax consequences or the ownership issues. So, so I'm hearing a common theme from both of you, and it really is true in virtually we every work, we family work together. dispute. We work together. That's why the themes are similar. You and I look and sound alike, don't <laughs> yes, we? Yes, we do. Um, one of the things is that you really have to talk about it often. So if you're starting off and you've created the entities or the structure, that's normally an inception event. It might be when, you, when the patriarch created the event. It may have been a structure created for tax planning. So the focus really wasn't really what was going to happen in the future. But over time, and I think this is often difficult in families, you actually need to talk about the realities. So when dealing with estate planning, and I talk to families that are doing complicated estate planning, I always say, use life cycle events to revisit. Do you have adequate insurance? How's the business going? And what I'm saying, of course, is talk to everybody. And this is difficult for families, particularly the traditional family where you didn't talk about money. So, well, and these are not single conversations. It's just like talking to your own kids about wealth. You know, when do you start? To, when do you talk to them about it? Well, it's not one point in time. It's an ongoing conversation. And this, it's the same with business transitions. These are conversations that have to go on over time, and they have to be consistent. So it's the sex education conversation to your teenager where both of you are rolling your eyes, and it's hard to and it's hard to initiate, but you have to do it anyway, over, um, over and over again. Uh, yeah, a, a different analogy may be to, almost to marriage counseling because. We often talk about these cases as a business divorce. And of course, when people get married, no one is planning to get divorced. But um, the thoughtful way to approach it is the type of communication we've been talking about and planning, and, and planning for what some may think might never happen, which is people won't get along, or the business might have to be uh, changed because of unforeseen events down the road. And I want to talk about what happens with businesses when there is a divorce in the family, but let's get to that in a minute. Let's talk about some other issues. You talked about planning, Robert, for what happens upon succession. And, and let me just ask the question generally, either Adam or, or Robert, are there ways to monetize, if you want to have a buy-sell, are there ways to talk in advance? How do you figure it out? How do you finance it? What are, what are some solutions we can think about that might make it easier for the family, particularly with a sudden death or a sudden transition? Again, we're talking about where the business is the single asset? Or the, the, or the primary asset. 
it is, this is never an easy uh, issue to solve. I mean, there, there are some ways to use uh, life insurance. You know, uh, one, one, one child gets business interest, one child gets life insurance, assuming that death is what triggers the uh, event in question. If, if you're just trying to transition during lifetime, sometimes it's hard to find other assets when there aren't any other assets available. You can use uh, various types of um, loan mechanisms. You can use various uh, installment payment type plans where, where the business is making payments uh, out to uh, the other owner. Essentially, you know, you, you know they, you, you, people get, some people get phantom stock, other people get regular stock, and the, stock, the phantom stock is bought back by the business over time, so there's some sort of an installment stream of income. There are lots of creative ways you can uh, think about it, but you have to be creative. And, and I do want to highlight that. I think installment sales and life insurance are really helpful. Term life insurance for the unexpected termination is really not that expensive, but I want to mention something about the installment. One of the problems we're seeing is that the patriarch or matriarch is using the business legitimately or otherwise as kind of their private piggy bank. They've, they've used it to, to, put, to flow all expenses, but they also took all the risks along the way. Now that the business is mature, when the next generation comes in, sometimes, oftentimes actually, they should look at, the family should look at, including in the transition planning, what should the next generation get? thinking about fair compensation because if you've got multiple owners the compensation of the principals becomes very important and sometimes the perspectives are different so talking about that might be well this is what leads to a lot of resentment isn't it you know where where, where maybe uh, you've got people in the business and, and other family members who are not in the business but the ones in the business think they're worth more because they're building something and so they uh, often think they need more compensation or they need to be bonused differently or, or they end up just being perceived as taking more from the business than, than the others think is healthy. Or, or alternatively, the ones who continue to run the business and are sending money out to siblings who are not doing anything, that, that creates a tremendous amount of resentment. So, so before we get off the business issue, which I think is a huge issue, but we've got a lot more to talk about, both of you mentioned the fact when there's a dispute. And, and, and Adam, I think you mentioned where you've got equal stockholders, but even if you have equal management, like a board of directors, where you have equal, equality in numbers or at least in power, um, what, I, what we refer to in our business as an impasse resolution. You know, how do you deal with that? So is, this is an issue we often come up with, a co-leader, whether it be an officer or a fiduciary, the failure to have impasse resolution, what happens when you disagree. So within the business context, what are some of the ways you could, uh, when you can't agree, you can solve that problem? Yeah, this is the problem. I mean, the, 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 the laws of most states will provide you with an impasse resolution, which means you, you can go to court and dissolve the business, which is not, not ideal. Uh, you can uh, do lots of different things. You can provide that uh, certain categories of decisions. Um, uh, if there's an impasse on those, one person or the other will make those decisions. Um, that sometimes works if you can actually clearly define uh, different roles. Uh, a lot of times you've got to put some sort of a third-party mechanism in or a third-party structure in where somebody can come in and make that decision. There's a, you know, either an outside uh, board member that can do it or there's... So like the use of an independent board? Independent board. Or, board. or, or, or majority you know, that this person decides if there's deadlock. Sure. A lot of family businesses don't have outside boards or independent boards, but it's not a bad idea. And, and most businesses that are, that are successful enough to be talking about these issues are probably uh, successful enough to be able to afford that kind of outside counsel. 
and they can probably benefit at some point in their life cycle from independent input. I mean, particularly if you're looking at generations of business, at some point you need outside input. You need to get outside the heads of the people who are started the business and who are now running it. They sort of lose, uh, lose focus on the bigger picture. So I want to give a statistic that I've given on other radio shows, but 80% of all wealth in the United States passes through family-owned or closely held companies. But of those that did not do planning, 90% will fail within two years. So the goal really is try to how to avoid that. Within, within two generations. Two generations, but yeah. after the patriarch, matriarch dies. Yeah. And, and what I'm hearing you say is plan. There's lots of solutions. And one of the solutions we're seeing, and we're going to talk about this in the context of trust, is dividing up duties. So sometimes somebody who's the better operations person might, in fact, be the one who gets the decision-making authority on operations issues when there is a conflict. Someone else might be the one who's dealing with investments. Someone else might be dealing with personnel, but dividing areas of responsibility and, of course, respect. Before we transition, uh, I want to talk about uh, how the same thing flows when you're getting with either a divorce or a remarriage. In terms of what? Let's, let's talk about businesses there. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are the partners of the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gaslowitz Frankel, Robert Port, Craig Frankel, and Adam Gaslowitz. And our roundtable discussion today is focusing on lessons from the trenches, avoiding disputes over money, estates, and businesses. So we were talking about having impasse control and planning in advance for business transition. One of Let the me, if, if I can interrupt for just a second, uh, Craig, one, one of the things also that is uh, not without some uh, dispute, but in the corporate documents, if some of the internal mechanisms to resolve things that Adam and you were just speaking about are, are not available. Uh, you can require mediation and also arbitration, which is generally enforceable and has the benefit of, of keeping things out of the public forum of a court. Yeah, and but a lot of people, people ought to, they ought to require counseling also. <laughs> uh, that's exactly what we do at Gasowitz Frankel. But Adam had mentioned stress testing, and I can't emphasize this enough. Earlier on in my career dealing with large commercial transactions, my firm and I were often hired to look at the document and say, where is their risk of loss? And I think sometimes when you're dealing particularly with successful businesses, having a litigation uh, specialist come in and say, here are the areas that you need to focus on, not necessarily telling them how to draft it. Let's use professionals to do that who deal with businesses and tax issues, but talking about the critical issues, issues that may come up, and mediation is one of them. When we're dealing with transition of businesses, though, at least hopefully with most families, we have a traditional kind of uh, trajectory. People age and they die at the appropriate time. We see, though, a lot of families, their primary business, particularly families where the marriage is, the, uh, the, the parents are under the age of 50, a primary asset is often going to be the business they're creating. And now the business is owned by the family and there's a divorce event. And the difference between a divorce event and aging is, is almost always sudden. So, so, t so what are some of the issues we face when a divorce comes up and the primary asset is a family business? 
Oh, uh, there's lots of issues that come up when people get divorced. Um, one, one of the things that happens with um, businesses that are formed while you're married are that for tax reasons uh, and for other structural reasons, you, you often title ownership interests in different names. So, so you, know, you may title um, some of the business in your spouse's name because you're, you, know, you have potential liability issues or you're just trying to spread assets around. A lot of people um, will also title assets in the names of trusts. You know, they may set up a, a, a trust for, for the children where you'll put chunks of business uh, interest into it. And then if there's a divorce, you end up with the uh, ownership of the business in hands that, that, that don't necessarily reflect what you want to happen after the divorce happens. And so control is sometimes lost of the business. And I want to underscore that there's a difference between control and ownership even in community property states where you're going to have a mandatory distribution with divorce, although many, many states, including Georgia, are what are called equitable division, which means the court decides how to divide things up. That relates to ownership. It doesn't relate to who controls it. The control will be set up by the documents. Are there ways um, that these corporate documents could be drafted to address potential divorce or potential early death? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the things that, that are... That not, are not of us draft those documents, but... I, <laughs> what are some of the ways you could think yeah, about yeah, this? I, look, there, there, there are a million different ways to do it. The problem is people aren't thinking about those things. If you're, if you're happily married and you've got three young kids, you're not thinking about how do I structure this business so that if I get divorced, my kids don't end up owning the business before they're even 18. I mean, th those are um, not just hard conversations to have. They're hard... Um, uh, thoughts to bring up in the it's, context of a it's, happy... It's, it's <laughs> no, yeah, it's no different than trying to deal with a prenup before one gets married. You know, it's it's very awkward and, and uh, can potentially create a lot of resentment. Yeah, but, but, but if you've got a business that, that is, is worth nothing now, but you know it's going to be successful, you, you've created this business... Have you before. ever met a client who did not think their business <laughs> would succeed? Well, no, n not so far. But, you know, so, you, so you've got low basis stock in a company you just formed that's going to be valuable one day. It's a, it's a, a And by low basis stock, you mean a value. What you mean is in the future, if you sell it, there'll be a huge tax dollar. A huge, a huge gain, sure. Um, so it's easy to transfer that stock into um, the names of children or trust for children or your spouse or anybody else because it doesn't have any value. There's no gift tax consequences for giving it away now. And if it's eventually valuable and sold, uh, those assets are outside the, um, uh, the estate of the uh, founding generation and already in the uh, estates of the next generations. But if you get divorced, the issue is no longer about uh, tax consequences when you die. It's, it's the stock is now owned by these trusts that my kids have, and I'm not getting along with them so well because of, of, of this or that. And, and so you, I think you've identified two issues that you don't realize you've identified. One is during the divorce process, You've got a year or two, depending upon what state you live in, where you've kind of in no not in, in na na land. Who's going to run the business in the interim? There could be a lot of problems. But also, then what happens after the divorce? What I'm hearing y'all say, I think, is this is hard for the business owner to think about, but the financial professionals they hire, particularly the estate planner, should be addressing these issues and have their toolkit of. Um, of, of, of solutions that are kind of their defaults and that the family owner should say, if they're not there and they're not hearing about it, say, wait a second, what happens? But would they don't have to be the one that comes up with the ideas. That's kind of what I'm hearing. Right. Sure. My, my financial advisor likes to use the phrase optionality. And by that, he means give yourself 
and we're talking uh, in, in terms here, in terms of the planning and, and the documentation, give yourself options for what might happen in the future. Think about what might happen. And you're not going to be able to anticipate everything, but lay out some roadmaps so that there's at least a fair indication of what the intent is going to be if your family breaks up, if the business owners, you know, second, third generation have a dispute. And, 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 and divorces cause a whole range of problems. <laughs> of course they do. And we're, what we're trying to do is talk about minimizing sure. these that you know, focus on it, when, when friends come to me and say, gosh, we're getting divorced. My first question is, what about the kids? How yeah. how are y'all handling this very difficult transition for an immature person? Sure. So when, but I would hear one of the things you're saying, and it's a huge issue for families, particularly where one is in the business and one may not be or may be taking care of family, is how do you deal with the value of the business? What are some of those issues that deal with the values of family businesses in the context of a divorce? You're talking about monetary value, not... Uh, not um, yes. Go- I mean, you, you've got a business that maybe where they've really invested all of their money, and now you're getting a divorce. You're going to have to really support now two you know, residences and two, two families, but you've still got this business that was growing and perhaps is not generating the income, and it's hard well, to, I mean, to monitor. What, what happens in a lot of those situations is, particularly when, again, the business is the main asset of the, of the, of the marriage, that you um, end up having one, uh, by agreement as part of the divorce, one spouse is going to buy out the other. But there's no uh, uh, cash to do it in one lump sum. You end up having to do it over some often a long period of time, and there's always the uncertainty by the spouse who's just getting a stream of payments that, you know, if the business doesn't succeed, I'm not going to get the rest of the value of this business because my ex-husband ran into the ground. I mean, so you might have a bankruptcy issue or just a collection problem. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Are you seeing, Robert, in the divorce cases that we're handling, because we're seeing a lot more cases where family businesses are owned by in the divorce context or there's trusts that are involved in the divorce context. And they come to us and we realize there's a huge dispute that, you know, in theory could have been at least addressed in advance. Are you seeing anywhere where uh, domestic relations attorneys are, are, are joining with estate planners and thinking these issues through so that there's at least an easier transition? More, more, um, more I but can't, not enough. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I can't say, yeah, I, I, what Adam said, um, some, but, but not enough. I, mean, I think like in a lot of areas, attorneys, uh, divorce attorneys think about divorce situations. Um, business attorneys think about that. But, but we do need to collaborate, particularly in instances like this, so that each brings their expertise to the table and can, again, you know, to the extent possible, uh, lay out some game plans if various scenarios happen. And, and one of the lessons I think we've seen after the fact is when you're contemplating a divorce or when a divorce has been contemplated for you, so to speak, is bring in your financial professionals. What's happening on estate planning? What's happening on business transitions? As difficult as divorces are, the overwhelming majority, ultimately there's a voluntary agreement. So thinking about these issues. So there's a bunch of issues that, that come up. And one of the ones that I am seeing a lot right now is that the beneficiary designations on joint bank accounts or 401ks or life insurance don't necessarily flow the way the divorcing parents, the divorcing family, who may not um, 
be talking a lot at that moment intended. What are some of the issues that are coming up on the designations when we have those types of transitions? Well, a lot of times you got problems with um, failing to change the designations on life insurance policies. It's not so much a problem with um, um, ERISA-type retirement plans. There's, there's some automatic things that happen. And when you say an ERISA-type retirement uh, plan, for, give an for, example. 401k plan, uh, uh, pension plans of various sorts, things like that. Um, but, you know, life insurance is often different. Sometimes uh, uh, IRA accounts can be different, and there are various other types of accounts that have beneficiary designations that if they're not dealt with specifically and, and very specifically in certain states in the divorce settlement agreement, those become lingering issues down the road. So you get uh, divorced, you get remarried, you never change your life insurance policy designation, and your ex-wife ends up inheriting your life insurance. Robert, does that sound familiar? Uh, yes, we have a matter right now going on in that. And, and one of oh, the things— had, And we've had lots of those over the years. Right, right. Uh, it's, it's the third or fourth one that I, that I know about over the last few years. And, and one of the things to keep in mind is we're, we're in Georgia— um, and uh, but the, but the, Georgia, like, Georgia does not have, like many states have, a statute which says when you're divorced, no matter what the beneficiary designation says, subject to some exceptions for ERISA, your ex-spouse does not get the life insurance. In Georgia, uh, if you fail to change your beneficiary designation, you are directing the insurance company because they are the ones obligated to follow what the beneficiary form says. And even though you're divorced and you uh, and your ex-spouse may have hated each other, he or she may end up with your insurance proceeds. So not only do you need to deal with changing your beneficiary designation, but this is an area where uh, our colleagues in the domestic bar need to very carefully make sure that if there is a settlement agreement of the divorce, uh, that they precisely say that insurance, any future rights to insurance, are waived by one spouse or another so they don't get into a dispute when someone dies and they designation has not been changed. And this is, this is as people are, are, are thinking and trying to behave rationally and thoughtfully. I mean, there's lots of situations in divorces where that's not the behavior. And you've got, uh, uh, we've had seen countless situations where, where, where one spouse or the other before a divorce will, will attempt to siphon off a lot of the marital assets into separate trusts. And those trusts, if they're structured properly, may not be part of the marital estate for equitable division purposes. And so you end up with, instead of a, a large marital estate being divided 50-50, um, you know, 80% of the assets are gone, and the only thing that's really left is a small amount that was not transferred out. And I want to underscore a couple of things. One, we're getting hired more and more to look at divorce agreements and more complex divorces to try to see some of these issues. And one of our, the advice that we give to a lot of our domestic relations um, colleagues is draft these issues in advance. Think about these issues in advance and get advice in advance. But many times we're seeing later what I would refer to as unintended consequences. So many times you get a divorce, and hopefully it's not because of an outside relationship, but in the future you're going to remarry. And we know the statistics. 75% of people who were divorced will remarry. That's the current statistic. And 50% of those will get divorced again. Correct. And, and, and we're finding divorces happening later in life as, as the demographics change and, and people age. So that will change the relationship too. We see in divorce decrees things like, you know, you have to maintain insurance for the children. This is a benefit to the kids. Life insurance rarely is a benefit for the second or third spouse. We also see things like 
you need to divide the estate to the children or give the estate to the children. But one of the problems we see is what is the estate? And there's a huge difference between what is referred to in the industry as the probate estate. These are things that are going to pass that you own when you die through your will or if you have a trust that does it. But the majority of people today don't own things at their death. They've used a different vehicle, a trust or something, or a beneficiary designation. And so it or is a joint or, account, account, or a joint account. That's and so it's going to pass outside the estate. So what are some things that we can tell our divorce, uh, domestic relations colleagues and also people who are getting divorced, what do you need to think about on ownership that you could perhaps address at the divorce stage? You're talking about after divorce or before? Before divorce. We're now, we're either well before divorce or we're now sitting in the conference room at mediation and saying, what we want to do is we want to be fair. We want to make sure our children inherit things. We want to make sure there's adequate life insurance. What are some of the things that they should be thinking about to solve the problem 20 years down the road that they won't to, to hopefully avoid? Um, one matter I, I had recently suggested that there is there needs to be clarity on what remains uh, after someone gets divorced in the estate that may go to their children. And the dispute in that case, amongst other things, involved a prenup where each party had laid out their property and each of their children from prior marriages presumed that they would get that property uh, when either parent died. But but the difficulty was that after being married a number of years, property had been sold, uh, changed, uh, different bank accounts opened. So, so the list of property that was identified as each spouse's separate marital property that each set of children thought they might inherit nowhere resembled anything they had when they passed. So it occurred to me that, that one way to approach that is to specifically identify either the property or the value that might go to someone's children. And there are mechanisms. There's lots right. of ways to think about it. For life insurance, let's make sure it doesn't lapse. There's ways to protect against that. And, and might I say, I believe this is Adam's suggestion, I, I think it is... Uh, a fabulous idea to have in the divorce decree that the spouse who is the beneficiary of the life insurance be named as what's called an additional insured, which requires the insurance company to give notice if there's a lapse of payment in the policy. Because we see plenty of cases where the divorce decree says in black and white, thou shalt keep the life insurance policy of X amount for so long for the benefit of the children, whatever it is, and by the time someone passes many years later, the policy hasn't been in place for years and years and years, and nobody knew that payments had been made or the policy lapsed. So, so what, what you're saying, and I think this is very important, so for an insurance policy, there's a way to get advance notice and fix the problem before it's too expensive. That's really the answer on all other issues. Figure out a way to disclose, mandatory disclosure, when you have trigger events, sales of business, anything it is, make sure that the divorced spouse gets noticed so they have time to fix it quickly rather than 20 or 30 or 40 years later. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. I'm Adam Gasowitz. I'm here with my partners Craig Frankel and Robert Port. 
of the fiduciary litigation firm of Gaslowitz Frankel, and we are your host today, having a roundtable discussion focusing on lessons from the trenches, avoiding disputes over money, estates, and businesses. You mentioned, Robert, uh, joint accounts. This is an area that we see huge problems with. So tell our listeners what the problems are, some of the problems are with joint accounts. Well, what what we often see is that an elderly uh, client or elderly person who needs help with their finances might, uh, as a matter of convenience, put a, a child or someone else on an account as a joint account holder with the theory that uh, it'll they'll help me pay bills. This will be uh, uh, useful for for planning and efficiency. And what those folks don't realize is that no matter what their will might say about where they might want those assets to go, uh, the joint account is governed by the uh, central contract. Essentially, I contract. think it's a deposit agreement for a bank, right. a brokerage agreement for a brokerage account. It's governed by the agreement that you have with the brokerage firm, with the bank, with the credit union, and once you pass on, whoever the uh, other person is on the joint account gets that no matter what your will says so there are different ways and more appropriate ways to deal with that without messing up what may be your estate plan and and i do want to underscore a problem that we often see many times it'll be the checking account and a related brokerage account or savings account that are relatively small in amount that are being used to to plan but as the family ages now we're starting to see sale of assets primarily the house and that money is put, perhaps intended to be temporary, are put into that account. And now it's large numbers. And, and you get a different issue. And what we find is oftentimes the family member who is put on the power, of, who's put on the account was for convenience purposes because of the ones that live the closest or doing the work. But over time, either the parent tells them or they feel that, gosh, they're entitled to more because they're the ones who did all of the work. So, so Adam, how, how could they avoid that when they go into the bank or the brokerage account and they say, I'd like to be on the account for convenience purposes, what should the bank or could the bank do? Well, most banks and brokerage houses have um, uh, what they call power of attorney accounts where you can give somebody the authority to act on your behalf without giving them ownership um, in the account itself or, or residual benefits to the account. Uh, the problem is they don't generally offer that up. You've got to ask for it. I'm not sure why that is, but it's it's been a problem in the industry for a long time. It's just easier for the bank to give you the joint account application as opposed. And to and, and our listeners should know that that the reason that makes a difference is that the power you're given under a power of attorney ends at death, and as a result, you don't run into these problems with a joint account with right of survivorship. That, that power also carries with it certain fiduciary responsibilities, so that you 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 owe a duty to the person who has given you that power over their account which can be um, enforced at some future point if there's been misbehavior. Right, and, and to just spin that out just a hair further, on a, on a joint account, uh, you may not have that fiduciary duty. Uh, in theory, both parties to that account have access to it and can do with those funds what they want. Even during life. And I do want to mention something about banks and financial institutions. As we start to consolidate our banks and they're being bought out and they become bigger and bigger, when you go into a normal customer goes into a bank, the person you're dealing with is often an early entry level um, banker who doesn't understand these issues necessarily, and they're dealing with a lot, a lot of issues. So it's not necessarily their fault, 
but it is a hard thing to do. I think this underscores that as you do your periodic reviews of your finances, talk to your financial planner, talk to your accountant, talk to your broker about how your accounts are titled. Adam you and, 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 and Robert, you both mentioned powers of attorney. Explain to our listeners what a power of attorney is. Power of attorney is a, a, a document that, that gives um, a, an agent that you designate the ability to act on your behalf either when you're unable to or sometimes when you are able to. Well, often they're, um, they're, they're used when someone is uh, incapacitated and can no longer act for themselves. And, and the powers that are given are usually designated in the document itself, whether it's in the bank form document or, or power of attorney that your attorney may have drafted for you. And I'm seeing, and we're seeing in our practice, a lot of powers of returning. I know they have fiduciary duties, but we're seeing that after the principal, after the adult that dies, that it turns out that somebody used the power of attorney to abuse and to take advantage. I've heard that happens, yeah. Um, and it happens a lot. What are some ways that the drafter of the power of attorney or the person giving a power of attorney can try to protect themselves? Oh, I think you should take this one, Craig. (laughs) (laughs) You've been on a rant about this for years. Okay, so I'm going to answer my own question, and and we can uh, tell all the jokes that relate to that. But I think one of the big issues is, and I think this really rings true with all fiduciary relationships, you can always put in a power of attorney two things that will really help. One is a disclosure requirement. So when you use a power of attorney the first time, particularly among families, you can require the agent to say, I'm using it. And And, and to notify either designated people in the power of attorney or other family Correct, but you need to notify somebody more than just the person you're acting for because they may not be able for whatever reasons. So notify either a third party or notify your brothers and sisters and then provide an annual accounting. And that means keeping receipts. Yeah, the, pro- the problem, of course, though, is you, there's no enforcement mechanism in a power of attorney. And that's the second point. Have an enforcement mechanism. And there's lots of ways to do it. What we're finding in our practice is if there's going to be a problem, the more secret it is, not only is it harder to find the problem, when you ultimately discover the problem, it's harder to, 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 to solve. So if you have a mechanism for an accounting, as an example, a disclosure, um, then at least you're starting it early. If another example is if you're going to make a gift, something that is not in the ordinary course, that too should trigger disclosure. If I'm going to make a sale of the business, a sale of the house, a gift of a substantial amount, you got to tell people and give them an opportunity to say, hey, wait a second. And I think that applies to power of his attorneys. And I'm going to shift now as we near the end of the show. I want to shift now for that same exact issue for, for trustees and executors. When you're acting for someone else, kind of the best way to, to at least minimize problems is to tell people what's going on along the way. Sure. Transparency is key. Doesn't always work, but at least it helps. It doesn't always work, but it when works better than lack of transparency. Right, because lack of transparency uh, it just creates cause, causes people to have suspicions and their minds start thinking, well, I'm not being told anything. Something untoward must be happening with this money, the asset, the business, whatever it is. So 
Disclosure, disclosure, disclosure. And I want to talk about disclosure when the fiduciary is acting. And a fiduciary is someone who steps in. It could be a trustee. It could be an executor. It could be the agent on a power of attorney. It could be an officer at a business. Somebody who is managing an asset or money for the benefit of someone else. But before we get to that, and this is a setup, Adam, what is the number one thing we hear when somebody dies about their parent when they don't know where the money is? What do they think? Well, they think there should have been a lot more of it than there is. Always. 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 They think there's a lot more money, and so the first thing that comes to their mind, and it's not always accurate, is, oh, my God, the fiduciary stole it. Yeah. Or, or, or the stepmom. Or the stepmom. Or, or my the, other sibling. Or the third spouse. Yeah, usually it's a sibling. It's almost always a sibling. But sometimes that's not true. One of the things we're really seeing with disclosures is as our society ages— and as the cost of health care and caregiving go up, and as more and more families don't live in the same community, the, the, the simple truth is that the elderly family member spent the money on their own care, or they made bad investment decisions at the end of life. Or, or they were living very high, which gave the impression that they had lots of wealth, but when they passed, the... Children realize that uh, there wasn't much there, and instead of getting a lot, they have to deal with a huge Amex bill. Yeah, and, and, and for whatever reason in our society, this is one of the things that people just don't talk about. Communication about finances, about money, among families, among friends, among anybody, is, is the thing we just don't talk about. And it used to be there were four things you never talked about. It was politics, religion, sex, and money. And the first three, we, we talk about readily on the airways, on social media, wherever. But we do not talk about money. We don't talk about compensation. We don't talk about assets in our family. We don't tell our kids what we have or what they're likely to inherit. We just don't talk about it. And there's a the, – the, the, the situation is not getting any better. There's more interest in, in not having to disclose, particularly with trust and things like that, where, where, where people don't want – the existence of trust to be disclosed to the beneficiaries for fear that it might ruin them. Well, if you don't know about a, uh, a trust that you have, you can't protect yourself, and there's no way to understand what's going on. And as your parents age, deal with getting access and tracking so that when something happens, the fall that results in a broken hip, or make sure that at least you understand where things are. We've got a few minutes left on our show. I want to finish one question because I think it's a big issue, and I'll set it up. One of the big problems we're seeing is who is going to be the executor or the fiduciary or the trustee? Um, in our last few minutes, Adam, what are the problems? How do you go about choosing a fiduciary? How do most people do it? Or how, well, how should how, we do it? What are the problems we're seeing? Uh, well, the problems we generally see is you've, um, either you've chosen someone who is ill-equipped to do the job, um, someone that, that is within the family, a child, a, a spouse, a, a friend, whatever, um, but they're ill-equipped to do the job because the, the job of, a, of a, an executor or a trustee is, is a complex job, and with regard to trust, a long-term job. So you cho choose someone that's uh, ill-equipped, or you choose um, co-fiduciaries so that they, they provide some sort of a, an imagined check and balance. You, know, you name your, your son and your, and your third wife as co-executors of the estate or co-trustees. By the way, third spouses and sons don't get along. They tend to not get along. But that's even true you, of your mom and the son because there's different interests and you're creating potential for conflict that you can avoid. Sure. Um, so so co-fiduciaries almost never work. I can't think of very many situations in my career where they have. Um, you know, the better solution in, in most situations where if, if you've got an estate worth seeking 
uh, advice on with regard to your business or your assets, if you have a, a taxable estate, a large estate, um, it's the kind of estate where a professional is probably what you want to have involved. So um, you know, we recommend corporate fiduciaries all the time because corporate fiduciaries um, are equipped to handle the complexity of managing a business, of managing assets, of making discretionary distribution decisions for a number of different beneficiaries. A lot of times they can deal with uh, special needs or addiction issues. You know, they're equipped because they have teams of people who have specialized in these various things. And so, they disclose. And they, right. well, they disclose. They account for everything and they disclose. And, they're, and, and people perceive them to be more expensive than just having your son do it, but it's expensive to have someone who doesn't know what they're doing do something, both in the short term because they've got to hire people to do those things, and in the long term because when they screw up, fixing problems is complicated. And, and just to, to close on the question of fees, yes, a lot of people are, are uh, concerned about the fees they might pay a professional fiduciary. But I think one way to look at it is that those fees are essentially an insurance policy. They're not going to protect you from all risks but it is a premium you pay to to protect you from having a a uh, incompetent or or uh, otherwise uh, person who you might select all in good faith uh, handle these very important matters so yeah I, yeah I can tell you that you know the firm's been around for over 30 years we've handled something in excess of 3000 estate and trust disputes and business related disputes less than 2 or 3% of them involve corporate fiduciaries. Almost all of them involve misbehavior by an individual who's put in a position of responsibility. So when Prove, I Proving the point that the insur- the money paid for those fees is, is well worth it. Yeah. It's an insurance policy that protects you against that risk. And so I'm going to le- end with a joke that I often tell to financial planners when I'm talking about how to avoid disputes, which is, when do you want to pay? So if you have an insurance policy in place, and I think using a professional fiduciary or someone outside to monitor is a relatively inexpensive thing, particularly because it avoids disputes, or do you want to pay a litigation fiduciary firm like Gasolich Frankel at the end? And, and the reason why I say that is when you get to the dispute phase, that's when people are willing, fortunately, to spend the money because they're angry at that point. And it is a very expensive but, but endeavor. It costs, it costs a lot more to solve a problem than to avoid it. And, and so, so, so to plan early and disclose as early. And with that, uh, as we wrap up our show, I want to thank everybody for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. Gasowitz Frankel specializes in all aspects of fiduciary disputes, representing individuals, executors, trustees, investors, shareholders, and financial institutions and trustees in complex disputes involving wills, estates, trusts, guardianships, businesses, and securities. For more information about Gasowitz Frankel and to download our ebook, Top 10 Tips on How to Avoid Estate Disputes, please go to our website at gasowitzfrankel.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. 